This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. voting in almost all parts of the world is that elections are an area where women see themselves as gender neutral. There is no apparent enthusiasm from women or men for that matter to define political questions in terms of male and female. It appears that women might wish to see themselves as women when they purchase clothes or a magazine or listen to a radio programme produced with them in mind. But as voters they are citizens with equal rights and gender is not a factor. Hello, good morning, and you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. Is the photograph a token of absence? On this week's show, filmmaker Nancy Cates explores the life and cultural legacy of American intellectual and literary icon, the novelist and critic Susan Sontag. And are women more politically conservative than men? Historian and political writer Jad Adams explores gender quotas, feminism and the evolution of women in politics in his fascinating new book, Women and the Vote, A World History. This is a show about protest and principles, gender and identity, vision and a lot of hard, hard work. But first, the dark lady of American letters, Susan Sontag. Susan Sontag was an American novelist political activist, cultural critic and literary icon. For more than 40 years, Susan Sontag wrote about the cultural and political forces shaping America, providing a moral compass to which to understand the issues of the day. In her many essays and books, she offered readers a unique reorientation of American cultural horizons, and by doing so, she drew intense criticism and scorn from many quarters, both inside and outside of America. Susan staunchly opposed the Vietnam War and contentiously said the white race is a cancer of human history. She famously visited Hanoi in 1968 in the midst of heavy American bombing to show solidarity with the North Vietnamese. And after the Arab-Israeli War of 1973, she went to Israel to make Promised Lands, a film about the Palestinian situation in Israel. In the 1990s, 
Susan also made numerous trips to Sarajevo and courageously produced a production of Waiting for Godot in the midst of the siege. Incidentally, Sontag also survived a terminal breast cancer diagnosis. She lived with other forms of cancer for the next 30 years, becoming a role model for all women who struggle with the disease. Susan's books include On Photography, Against Interpretation, Styles of Radical Will, The Way We Live Now, Illness as Metaphor, Regarding the Pain of Others, and In America. On Photography won the National Book Critics Award in 1978 and In America won the National Book Award in the year 2000. In 2001, Susan was awarded the Jerusalem Prize. She also received the Prince of Astorius Award on Literature and the Peace Prize of the German Books Trade. In On Photography, Susan wrote, All photographs are memento mori. To take a photograph is to participate in another person's mortality, vulnerability and mutability. Precisely by slicing out this moment, and freezing it, all photographs testify to time's relentless melt. Susan died in December 2004, when a new documentary film has just been released on the life and works of Susan Sontag. Regarding Susan Sontag is produced and directed by Nancy Cates and offers viewers an intimate portrait of one of America's most controversial and influential thinkers. Well, over the weekend, I gave Nancy a shout and asked her about her interest in Susan Sontag. We started out by discussing her unique intellect and how Susan Sontag cannot be put in a box. Well, that was what was interesting and challenging about making a film about her is that she was so contradictory. And every time you kind of think you have a bead on Susan Sontag, she surprises you or she contradicts herself again. So many things. She, she wanted in some ways to be perceived as being without gender because she was this brain with ideas. And then she also happened to be this beautiful woman and she was very willing to use her beauty and her sexuality to help her career. So, you know, that's just one of the many, many, many contradictions. Can we talk about regarding Susan Sontag and how you went about making this documentary? She was tremendously vocal and an amazing socially minded person. So I imagine making a documentary about Susan was very complicated, to put it mildly. It was a daunting task. In fact, the first few months after I had the idea, I just sort of ran away from it because I thought, I, I can't do this. This is too much like climbing Mount Everest, you know. <laughs> and and it continued to be. I mean, you know, sometimes the air would get thin and other times we would fall into a crevasse. So, <laughs> you know, the metaphor works in a certain way. But, you know, we did a ton of homework is what I call it. I mean, we, I read a lot of things that she had written. I, I went through her papers, which are at UCLA in Los Angeles. You know, I had people working on archival footage research for years. I mean, it was just a big project. And, and we also tried to make the film beautiful because she was obsessed with beauty and to make the film into its own artwork. And she challenged a lot of conventional thinking on gender, on war, on activism, and really rocked the boat. Well, she did and she didn't. I mean, she it's hard to remember now that for example, she was considered quite radical for having no, written notes on camp in 1964 or written on photography in 1975 because serious intellectuals didn't write about pop culture in 1964. And even in 1975, photography was not really considered a very serious art form in the art world. It was sort of looked down upon as some mechanical thing compared to painting or sculpture. So she definitely broadened the horizons of what people thought about in, in sort of high literary circles. And at the same time, 
she became part of the literary establishment as she went along. The great irony about her is that the most controversial thing she said was at the end of her life, and it was about 9-11, and she was perceived as not having enough sympathy for the victims of 9-11 in America, which is ridiculous. I mean, the thing she wrote was basically to say, let's not be stupid about U.S. foreign policy and its consequences in other parts of the world. And also, she didn't like the way politicians responded to 9-11, which was, among other things, to tell Americans to go shopping, you know, <laughs> to keep America strong. But you know, she said a lot of other shocking things at other points in her life, including during the Vietnam War. She said the white race is the cancer of human history. That's probably the most extreme thing she ever said. But yeah, she did push buttons and she was happy doing so. And Nancy, it's amazing when you think that she was such a prolific writer and critic, yet she coped with immense health challenges. She had cancer numerous times and different types of cancer also. And she was able to spirit on all the way. Well, I think particularly she was writing, I guess she was writing in America when she had cancer the second time, which is the one that we don't address very much in the film because it was just one thing too many. But she had to stop writing the book because she had to have treatment for cancer. And then she was very fed up with that. And there's a story that didn't make it into the film from her first cancer, but she'd agreed to write the introduction to a book of photographs by Peter Hujar. And there are several photographs of her taken by Peter Hujar in our film. And she was about to have this operation, you know, for breast cancer. And so she wrote the introduction the night before her surgery because she was afraid that she might not wake up from the surgery and she wanted to make sure she fulfilled her obligation to Peter Hujar. <laughs> um, and his book is called Portraits in Life at Death because he was interested in the catacombs. It's an amazing thing that here she is in the hospital the night before her breast cancer surgery, which she must have been very scared about. And she's sitting there writing this introduction to this book of photography. So she was incredibly dedicated to her work. And possibly that was her coping mechanism and all that intellectualism allowed her to be creative and I suppose stay alive. She said she would say things like, I must remain at my post. And by that she meant that you know, for her, writing was the same as, like, guarding a building or something that, you know, that she had a she had a position. It was something she had to remain dedicated to at all times. And she was pretty productive. I mean, she wrote 17 books while she was alive. So that's a pretty good output. And when you consider that most of those books were fairly controversial, she won a lot of awards all around the world. But on every publication, she seems to have incurred a lot of criticism and also a lot of attention. So that must have been very hard to manage. Yeah, I mean, not everything she wrote was a success. And she also made four films and they were not considered great successes. But she was willing to take risks. And I think that's something that maybe has gotten harder as time has gone on. For example, she you know, was invited to Sweden in the early 70s to make a couple of feature films. She didn't know how to make a feature film, but she was willing to do it and, and sort of take her chances and do this thing in public that could be a complete failure. You know, I don't think her films were a great success, but she was willing to try it. And, you know, that adventurous mind that she had went in lots of different directions, and some of them were more successful than others. So not everything she did was controversial, but but a lot of it was very gutsy. And one of the hugely gutsy things that she did was during the siege of Sarajevo, she directed a production of Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot. It takes huge optimism, a huge sense of hope and massive grace as well when you think about it. Well, she actually went to three war zones. She went to North Vietnam during the Vietnam War, which is against US law. She went to Israel at the end of the 1974 war, which is called the Yom Kippur War by Jews. 
she was mostly there at the very end of it, and she made this film, Promised Lands, where she was documenting the war and, and its consequences. And then she went to Sarajevo. I think the Sarajevo was probably the riskiest, although the U.S. was bombing Hanoi while she was in Hanoi illegally. So, yeah, she had this sense of bearing witness to war and be, trying to be helpful. I mean, the reason she directed the play is that she said, what can I do? I'm here. You know, I know how to type. I'm not a doctor. I can't help people who are injured. I can write something or... and. They asked her to direct this play, which I think was a way of trying to be hopeful and positive in the middle of a very grim situation. And she did it in a unique way where there were three sets of the main characters instead of one pair of actors playing the characters. There were were like three of them. I haven't actually seen footage of the production, just of the rehearsal, so I can't describe it in great detail. But um, it was an attempt to build community and and maintain a sense of hope in a very, very difficult moment. Can we talk a little bit about some of her iconic books, The Pain of Others, Illness as Metaphor, and of course, On Photography, which actually didn't contain any photographs at all. You know, it's an odd thing that that the book was published without photographs, because if you go look at the papers, she actually went and wrote to all these rights holders, asking them for permission to publish their photographs in On Photography. And then the book was published without them. And I didn't understand this at first. Apparently, it's the responsibility of the author to pay for those rights. And so I suspect that she got a lot of them and decided it was just going to be too expensive for her because the publisher was not going to be paying for the photographs. She was going to be paying for them personally. And what she said about this was, oh, everyone knows those photographs that I'm talking about, which was, of course, not true then and certainly is even less true now. She wrote mesmerising essays that were very challenging. I know that she was quite close with Hannah Arendt and some other female intellectuals. I think they were like little bolts of lightning when they were published. I mean, certainly, you know, the first one that made her super famous was Notes on Camp. And it really was like this. I don't know how to put it. It was, you know, it was like a people said that it was like a rocket, you know, launched across the ship of, of um literary culture because it was so transgressive at the time to write about popular culture in a serious magazine. And then many of her other essays were also just groundbreaking because no one had thought about things that way. I mean, the other very famous essay from the early period was against interpretation. Like, here she is, she's considered a critic, although she was not a critic in the sense of, like, I think this book is good and you should go read it. She didn't care about that. She wanted to write about artists and writers that she admired, so she wasn't going to bother to say, this play stinks. She thought that was a waste of her time. And Nancy, how close was she with her son David? I know he worked on some of her papers after she died. She was very close to him for a long time, and he was her editor for a while at Farrar Strauss. So he was, you know, like a sounding board for her and a very important part of her work for a number of years. But I don't think they had an easy relationship. He wrote a memoir of her death. And he basically says in that book that he doesn't want to talk about his relationship with his mother before her death. I can't imagine that it was so easy to be Susan Sontag's son, but that's just conjecture. But they both seem to be quite complicated characters in their own right. So I imagine it was all very tricky to navigate. Last question, Nancy. You've spent a lot of time working on this. And as you've said, she's inspired you since you were very young. I'm wondering how... How close did you get to Susan and did she let you down in any way? Because I imagine it's like a very close friendship when you work on somebody's life for so long. You're in quite an intense relationship and within all intense relationships, we can become disappointed. Well, you know, I think the thing about being a biographer is you have to have a lot of compassion for yourself and for the subject because you do have a relationship with your subject. And I went through very different periods where I was totally looking up to her and that I was really angry with her and then I wanted to get her out of my head and 
I think I kind of, I got very close to her younger sister, Judith, during the making of the film. And I think in some ways I started to feel like I was another younger sister, even though she only has one actual younger sister. (laughs) So, you know, that she was the infuriating, beautiful, brilliant older sister that I could never live up to. But I had to sort of respect and do my best with since she was looking over my shoulder. (laughs) But disappoint is too strong a word. Things just change and evolve the more you know about someone. And I think I kind of got to some place of acceptance of her. I wouldn't say that we're giving you the final word on Susan Sontag. I don't think that's really possible. And I think she didn't want to be seen in certain ways. And I have compassion for that, that she was so afraid of her reputation being tarnished by admissions of homosexuality, for example, that she was this contradictory woman who was so brave in public and so fearful about revealing too much of her own vulnerability. So, I don't know, I think I wound up feeling sad for her in a certain way, that she couldn't be seen for who she was, which she really wanted to be, and maybe can be seen more so now that she's gone. And that was Nancy Cates, producer and director of Regarding Susan Sontag. Regarding Susan Sontag was made in partnership with HBO Documentary Films and had its world premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival earlier in the year. It will be screening this side of the Atlantic late autumn. OK, coming up next, did nationalism and not feminism get women the vote? Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I'm Susan Cahill. If you'd like to get in contact with the show, well, all you need to do is drop me an email at talkingbooks at newstalk.ie. It's always lovely hearing from you. Really lovely. OK, let's now move into a very challenging space. Women's engagement with politics. Margaret Thatcher famously said, If you want something said, ask a man. If you want something done, ask a woman. But has the enfranchisement of women been a squandered victory? Before 1893... No woman anywhere in the world had the vote in a national election. A hundred years later, almost all countries had enfranchised women and it was a sign of backwardness not to have done so. In Women and the Vote, Jad Adams takes the story of women in politics from the earliest times to the present day, highlighting the many brave and inspiring stories of women suffrage pioneers Across the globe, Women and the Vote, a global history, is the first post-feminist history of women's struggle for the vote. What's interesting about this book is Jad's argument. He controversially rejects the idea that success was primarily a result of pressure group politics from the suffragettes and their supporters. He argues it was nationalism, not feminism, that was the most important factor in winning women the vote. Interestingly, his research reveals women divide along roughly the same political lines as men. They respond to the same empty slogans, glib half-truths and ideological fantasies as men. That women must have the vote was fair and just, but the notion that this might make politics a more fair and just business or produce a realignment of morality along gender lines was fanciful. He says politics is a profession where promise and betrayal are prominent. The gender of its practitioners is irrelevant. Jad Adams is an Associate Research Fellow at the Institute of English at the University of London and a Fellow of the Royal Historical Society. His books include biographies of Tony Benn, Gandhi, Kipling and Emmeline Pankhurst. When I spoke with Jad, I asked him how significant a factor was the role played by women in securing for women 
the vote. Yes, there were very often feminist organisations, but the size and efficiency of the feminist organisation didn't guarantee women getting the vote in that particular country. Sometimes you'd have a country like Luxembourg, where women got the vote with with no particular organisation at all, or Norway, where women got the vote in 1913 with no significant organisation. Other places like Holland, where there was a massive organisation, had to wait for a long time, and the United States was relatively late in 1920 in women getting the vote, even though there was a huge feminist organisation in the US. So it wasn't the pressure group politics of a feminist organisation alone which got women the vote. In some countries, people would say they got the vote because of the war, and certainly there was a lot of enfranchisements of women immediately after the First World War. What I would suggest is the decisive factor, or was the decisive factor, was great national upheaval and the discrediting of the existing government probably the government that had got the country into the war in the first place. How influential were the Catholic Church in securing women the vote? And how big a part did they play? Well, the Catholic Church was very influential in denying women the vote to start off with. But after 1919, with the new Pope, with Benedict XV, he decided that women should have the vote. Look at the date. It's 1919. We've had the Bolshevik Revolution. And Benedict XV realises that if he strengthens the voice of Catholic women in in political society, then that will be something of a bolster against the threat of communism, which is what everyone's really frightened of at the end of the First World War. And so that happens there. However, there were many countries like Italy and France where men who already had the vote specifically wanted to deny women the vote because of the Catholic influence. So they felt to defend the Republic... They have to stop women from voting because women will always do what the priests tell them. So they didn't have much confidence in women's political judgment. And so that's the reason why Italy and France had to wait until after the Second World War for women to get the vote. But the significant fact, the real turning point, particularly for places like Latin America, was when the Pope started to support women's suffrage in 1919. And also within all of that, the role of some very charismatic, hard-working campaigning individuals. You can't possibly discount the activity of these activists and the inspiration which they gave, not only in saying we want to be involved in the political process, but in being representative women who were working in the public sphere and were therefore able to act as a guide and a beacon for other women. Can we talk about Mary Wollstonecraft? She's a very interesting figure, a very conflicted lady indeed. She had a very intriguing private life. She worked very, very hard and she was very convicted and passionate. And I'm just wondering how instrumental was she as the force for engaging, I suppose, society on the importance of a vote for a woman? This is rather sad because, of course, she died in childbirth and she'd written her, her book, Vindication of the Rights of Women, which, of course, followed all these books by people like Payne, Vindication, who was talking about the rights of man. And she's saying, yeah, what about the other half of the human race? And that was tremendously important. It's a very powerful piece of writing. Mainly, she's concerned about marriage and about the lack of, of women's property in marriage. Of course, she's writing at the end of the 18th century. The sad thing about her dying in childbirth in terms of literature and achievement was that that book, The Vindication of the Rights of Women, was supposed to be the first book which was about the private sphere, marriage, and and that sort of relationship of women to men. The book about the public sphere and about women's rights or lack of them politically was going to be the next book, and that book never got written. Do you think history has been very unkind to her? 
oh, well, I think the people who'd been unkind to Wollstonecraft were the very respectable ladies of the suffrage societies in the second half of the 19th century, because they were all very keen to show how respectable they were and how women's suffrage, women voting, would help to consolidate the family and would purify society and would stop people drinking and all sorts of things that they offered. But it was a very Victorian drawing room approach to what the vote could achieve and what women in political life could achieve. And it was the exact opposite of what Mary Wollstonecraft offered because she was sexually liberated and she she was a revolutionary. She went over to France at the time of the revolution to see what was happening there because she was excited by it. And the feminists of the late 19th century wanted to distance themselves from Wollstonecraft. But it's interesting, Judge, you had two very different approaches. You had a literary feminism of sorts all across Scandinavia Mm. and violence and radical campaigning of women's politics in Ireland and England and across Europe. So you two very different approaches. You the thinking more sublime approach and then the protest approach. And the protest approach at times caused a lot of conflicts within women's groups by just their methods. Certainly they did. The literary feminism of Scandinavia, one of the ways it defined itself was by saying we are not activists like the British are activists. We're not going to be like the Women's Social and Political Union and go throwing stones or go on hunger strikes, spitting at policemen, the kind of things that the suffragettes did. They defined themselves by saying how pure they were, how protective they were of society. And that was one of the things that literary feminism in Scandinavia had to offer. And indeed, Scandinavian society has been a a rather calmer society than British or Irish society has been. One of the most fascinating stories is the story of Eva Perón. And as I was reading this chapter, I thought, how different Argentinian politics would have been if Eva Perón hadn't died so young of cancer. Eva Perón actually had formed the largest women's party ever created. She had half a million members of a political party, which is amazing. Of course, it was a party which was devoted to supporting her husband, his party, the Peronist Party, but it was still a party in a democratic society that had democratically elected Perón. Yes, the society would have been different if she had not died so young. She was only 33 when she died, but she achieved so much and she was such an inspiration. In one way, dying was a good career move. (laughs) Funny that you say that. She was so driven and yet society judged her very harshly. Certainly middle class women in Argentina were very uncomfortable around her. She was seen because of her working class origins and I think she was illegitimate, wasn't she? Yes, she was illegitimate and one of the things that she despised most about the middle class as a whole, the respectable middle class in Argentina, was the way that people like that had refused her and her mother permission even to attend her father's funeral because she was illegitimate and her mother was this man's mistress. And that was a hurt that she carried with her. But she carried an awful lot of anger and an awful lot of bitterness with her, and she used that bitterness. So lots of people are bitter, lots of people are angry about things that happened to them, but she used those things to get back at people. And that's one of the really powerful things about Piron, that she was prepared to use what she had within her as a class-based battle against these superior ladies of the feminist organisations. And that's what makes her one of the most remarkable people. She could make contact with the poor and particularly poor women of Argentina to such an extent, and there's a picture of her in in my book on her deathbed voting. Someone takes a ballot box to her bed because she's actually going to die. She can't get up and she puts her ballot into that box. And when the box is carried outside, there are women kneeling on the steps outside 
the hospital, wanting to touch the box as if it were a holy relic, because Eva Perón has touched it with her democratic hand. Now, it's interesting, Jad, that you use the word anger there. I think that going through all the different women that you profile in this book and all the inspirational stories, their grit, their determination and possibly their anger was what drove them forward in life and what emancipated women. Was that the essential ingredient or the essential characteristic in their makeup that made them the tremendous women that they were? It's certainly a common characteristic of women in in this book, women fighting for suffrage, but also of, of campaigners generally, a great sense of injustice, of wrongs that have to be righted and only you can change these things, only you must put your body into the fight. And in fact when when there isn't a great injustice it does seem that women's suffrage takes a long time. You mentioned Switzerland earlier, I think. Women didn't get the vote in Switzerland until 1971. And really, that was because women didn't actually feel themselves to be uh, particularly downtrodden in Switzerland. There was very high levels of education, high levels of professional women, very good rates of salary and so on, good living conditions. And so women didn't feel we really must vote because we've got to redress this awful situation because the situation in which Swiss women were were living was not particularly bad. And it's interesting when you bring up the Swiss case. I'm just looking at one of the appendices in your book, The Chronology of Women's Suffrage. While New Zealand was the first country to give women the vote, when I went down the list, I was quite surprised by some other countries that were quite late. I wasn't surprised that the likes of Kuwait and Oman and Qatar and Bahrain, you know, were very late in giving women their vote. But when I looked at other countries, certainly in Europe, when I look at Spain, when I look at Italy, when I look at France, It's quite surprising that countries that you would have thought were more enlightened weren't necessarily. Not terribly. Yeah, well, Spain is an interesting story, really, because women got the vote in 1931 in Spain, which was in an effectively democratic revolution. But then when Franco took power after the civil war, civil wars from 1936, 1939, Franco overthrew the democratic government and ruled as a dictator and abolished all elections, including women's involvement in election. He then introduced some element of election, but women didn't really get the vote back until the 1970s, until 75 after Franco had died. And of course we had some very trenchant British and Irish campaigners, including Hannah Sheehy Skeffington. Yes, Hannah and Frances Sheehy Skeffington, they um, combined their names together in a very modern way, rather than her taking his name or whatever on their marriage. They were a radical couple. In 1914, their approach to the war is demonstrated by the slogan, votes for women now, damn your war. They were passionate advocates. I've worked in the National Library of Ireland looking at the Sheehy Skeffington papers and you've got Francis writing at the time when his wife is actually in prison for um, for suffrage activities because they were militant suffragists. They were also Irish nationalists but they didn't think that you had to put women's suffrage aside just because you were nationalists and uh, a lot of the people in the nationalist movements felt that that was the case. The most important thing was national self-definition and women's suffrage and all those other things could come afterwards. The Sheehy Skeffington said, no, we're going to have them all at once. We want to demand a state in which women are equal. And that made them different from some of the other nationalists. Jad, can we talk about a few of the great British women involved in this story? Some of the women who put their lives on the line to secure Mm. women the vote. Some of the stories are very violent. They were very radical thinkers and they very creatively went around protesting, while others were more philosophical in their approaches. 
Yes, certainly. There was a real division between the people who were called the constitutional suffragists who were in the majority, and they didn't want to break windows or slash paintings or blow things up, and the suffragettes who felt that, that the only thing they could do was to be violent. They thought that every other expedient had been tried and now they'd got to use violence. There's a continuing discussion about whether that level of militancy was ever necessary, all of the smashing things and then going to to prison for it and then hunger striking in prison and all those awful images that we have of the suffragette, those painful images, there's a continuing discussion about whether that sort of behaviour was necessary at all. Certainly they gave an example for other women around the world, either one that they could embrace and other women in Egypt, for example, used the hunger strike and they did in Mexico, or in some cases, an example they could reject and they could present themselves as women did in Holland and in the Philippines to say, look at us, we're not like those awful British women. We deserve the vote because we're so decent and want to make such a contribution to society because we're not destructive. So the image went round the world and the image of the suffragettes was very influential. And what's interesting there is, Judge, that within all of this class played a very tricky part in how women were recruited or not or how women were embraced or not. And even if we look at the iconic Pankhurst family, the siblings themselves, they had very different views on women in class and women in the vote. Oh, most certainly. So Christabel Pankhurst said this is a campaign that's so important we must only have the best, the most educated, the strongest women. And she's got a real feeling for eugenics, Christabel Pankhurst. And she meant they'd got to have upper class women who were strong and who were clever and perhaps even attractive as she was. For Sylvia, who was her sister and had always felt to be some degree in in her shadow, things were different. She said, what we've got to do is empower the poor. And so Sylvia Pankhurst went into East London, poor area of Britain, and built up her 